It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Deitch. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. One guest this week, but uh, an excellent one and a topical one, and uh, one of the best to do it on his beat. It's Alex Sherman. He is a CNBC media reporter. If you follow that network or read that network online, you're obviously familiar with Alex's work. He, um, he's been doing a ton of stuff when it comes to the intersection of sports media and business, or sports and business, I would say. Probably just don't want to limit them to media. And uh, we're going to get into some of the topics that have been uh, prominent when it comes to sports media in the last two weeks. And with that, I bring in Alex Sherman. Alex, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, it is always a pleasure. Alex, you work very cheap for me, and I cannot thank you enough for that. All right, before we get into some of the, the sort of the real, you know, businessy kind of things, you know, as you know, I'm much more of a generalist and a broader kind of view on this stuff. I do want to talk about Super Bowl viewership because that's something like my audience, like those who are not in the super weeds in terms of the business, like, can understand and relate to and like, oh, wow, look at this number. So the Super Bowl viewership averages 123.7 million viewers across all the different platforms. That shatters the previous mark of 115.1 million for last year's game. 7% increase. We will, of course, give the caveat that over since 2020, we are now in an out-of-home viewing universe where Nielsen has much better data in terms of the people who are watching like the Super Bowl and restaurants, bars, airports. So the numbers are going to be quote unquote higher than they were back in the day. But this comparison is apples to apples. Last year was the exact same kind of metric and 7% to me, Alex, is a huge, huge jump. Uh, Let's start here. I want your just sort of big picture takeaways when you saw the numbers that CBS and Nielsen put out. So a lot of things went right, I think, for this game. Um, clearly, there was a Taylor Swift effect. Uh, I think um, female viewership, 18 to 34, was up 14.2% versus last year's. Oh, that's an overall for the playoffs, actually, not just for the Super Bowl. Uh, but I, I believe females, even above 65, Correct. was up. I think every almost 10%. every female demo, I think, was up just about. Exactly. Yeah. So that helped. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I think the game itself was very good um, to opponents who were fairly clearly evenly matched, um, both with their own narratives, the whole Brock Purdy Disney story, uh, the idea of, you know, is Mahomes going to challenge uh, Brady for, you know, one day goat status, all of that stuff working very well in the favor of CBS. But look, I mean, 
you know, I've been the last couple of months I've been working on a documentary about ESPN and how ESPN will uh, compete in a streaming future. And, uh, you know, I'll sort of tease the documentary, but um, I, I, part of it was that I followed Joe Buck and Troy Aikman around for uh, a little while as they prepared for Monday Night Football. And one of the things Troy Aikman told me, and, and that resonated with me when I was talking to him, was that we are just in a cultural moment that fits football so well. And I'm talking about all demographics. Of course, we know that football is wildly the most popular sport out there. But in terms of the younger generation that hasn't been brought up on this culture of watching these long games and sitting through advertisement, on the face of it, you might think, you know, well, football is so long with all these ads. How do they have the attention span for this? But there's only there's so fewer games in football than there are in these other sports. And you can walk away and come back and you have betting and you have fantasy. Uh, it's it's just, it, it fits very well into the particular culture we are in now in a number of ways that I think a lot of other sports uh, are still struggling. With. And so it has such a foothold uh, in our culture that it is really, really uh, stark that you just see the amount of people that subscribe to traditional TV go down by the millions every single year, and yet the ratings for live football keep going up. It is quite remarkable, uh, and the Super Bowl is yet another example of it. Yeah, excellent point. The regular season viewership up 7%. Obviously, I just gave you the numbers for the Super Bowl. So I want to ask you a couple of specific things, if and you can give me your sense of impact. How much do you think legalized gambling or now that more states, obviously, you are able to bet in, how much do you see that as a correlation to the regular season numbers and the Super Bowl numbers being up this year? Look, there's got to be some correlation there. To your point, it's legalized gambling is still not in the biggest media markets or at least many of them. I mean, it's in New York now, but it's not in California yet. Uh, and, And certainly, you know, football is extremely popular. Uh, in the su- in the south of the United States, and it's not in a lot of those states either, uh, including Texas. So uh, we're getting there, but like that 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 train, I think, hasn't even fully revved up to what it may be. Uh, it, you'd have to imagine, though, that I mean, it's just again, it's the 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 ability to bet is so easy that it's there, there's so much marketing. If you watch any of these football games or or just sports channels in general. The marketing's down from what it was a couple of years ago, but it's still very prevalent that, you know, I I think you'd be putting blinders on if you thought it had no effect. Paramount Plus, literally days after getting this incredible viewership number and certainly getting additional ad revenue from the game going to overtime, I think I saw Anthony Krupe of Sportico say about $60, $70 million. Yeah, maybe it's more, I'll touch more, maybe it's less, but but it's a significant number. Literally days after this, Alex, they announced massive layoffs at uh, Paramount Global. And, you know, if you're a layperson reading this, you're like, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, once again, more media layoffs. And two, this company just comes off a massive, um, you know, Super Bowl number. My sense is you probably knew that these layoffs were coming. The reason I give that exposition to 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 the audience so that they know um, the background of this, does this sort of portend the sports rights holdings that Paramount Plus has that something could in theory happen to them where I don't know you know they, they it, it breaks off Paramount tries to get into and we'll get into the joint venture between WBD Fox and ESPN but if you could pinpoint it down to what does this mean for sports at least from your perspective Paramount 
did not need to announce their layoffs the day after they reported blowout ratings and uh, for the Super Bowl. So that was, you know, that was a choice that the company made. To your point, you're right. Paramount itself had um, had foreshadowed these layoffs in an internal memo that I reported on a couple weeks ago. So even people at the company knew this was coming. They didn't know the extent of it. I reported it's about 800 uh, employees. One thing I will say is if you line up those things, while again superficially you you may say, look, you know this this seems uh, uh, kind of wild that they'd announce this great news and then sort of this terrible news. From a Wall Street standpoint, the fact of the matter is it's good news twice because Wall Street always loves layoffs and cost cutting. And certainly in this era, there uh, a lot of these investors are looking to these media companies to cut costs, particularly Paramount Global, which continues to lose money on its Paramount Plus streaming service. So uh, to get to your second part of the question, yeah, look, Paramount Global is uh, in the midst of talks with a number of different potential buyers. Uh, this has sort of been well reported at this point, whether it's uh, you know Larry Ellison's son, David, and Skydance Media wanting to potentially merge with Paramount Pictures, the movie studio, and how do you get that deal done? Or a bigger full merger with Warner Brothers Discovery, where there's been uh, preliminary talks already, or you know Byron Allen lobbed in a bid. I don't know how much uh, faith you want to put in that bid, considering he seems to just bid for every legacy media asset, and, and, and almost none of those deals come to fruition. But it, all you need to do is listen to CEO Bob Backish talk about the company, and you know he uses coded language. He says, you know, we're here to maximize shareholder value uh, in whatever way we can. You know, whether that's an independent company uh, or you know through other means. That is just clearly just code for you know look like we will sell our company yeah, we're open for business right, right right exactly we're open for business and so it's very clear that they are open for business i think it's far less clear if a deal actually gets done um because it all comes down to the deal structure and price you know if paramount global is seen as a deteriorating asset is a bidder going to uh, uh pay today's price plus a premium on top of that in order to convince shareholders to sell and how big will that premium need to be these are all open questions my sense is that uh no nothing is imminent here um so even though these deal talks have been going on for a while the feedback i get is that don't expect a deal uh uh you know w w within the with the coming days or anything like that last one before we get to uh espn fox wbd's uh, joint venture you're living in a fantasy world if you don't think taylor swift had an impact on the super bowl you're just you're and I'm not talking about the insane human beings who are putting the conspiracy theories and uh, Pentagon uh, op. I mean, you know, we'll we'll take a break from that. But like, if you're playing that kind of content card, man, you're you're you, you know who you are anyway. That said, Alex, I am curious, and this is kind of the interesting thing about Taylor Swift to me in terms of how it relates to the NFL and the Super Bowl. What I don't know, I honestly, and I usually feel like I have a pretty decent feel on this, but I don't have a feel on this one, is will it carry over to next year? L let's make the presumption just for the sake of this conversation that Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift remain a, a couple, uh, you know, whether it becomes a marriage, whether fiance or just boyfriend, girlfriend, they are still connected. So the question to me would be, was this sort of thing a, like a one-time phenomenon where all there were so many media outlets who sort of jumped on it, got great you know page views and and ratings for it, or or is it sustainable in the fact that there will be some people 
who sampled the NFL, who had never sampled the NFL before because of Taylor Swift, who stick around? Do you have any feel for what this means for the 2024-25 season? Yeah, good question. I almost uh, think about that in the cultural sense of we are living in a moment now where Taylor Swift seems to be one of one in terms of stardom. I mean, I can't really remember the last time in the celebrity world, there has been one person that has been clearly above everybody else. I agree. I don't, maybe like Michael Jackson. The only only other equivalent I feel in my lifetime is Michael Jackson. The only one. Right. So that I think is the question, which is a year from now. Is she still in that central casting role of one star among others? And if she is, then I would imagine we will have a similar effect. Uh, where, where, where we will see some carryover. But, you know, if for some reason, you know, the, the the general public starts to get a little bit tired of it, then I imagine we'll probably see a fallback on the football ratings as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's get into something that you have covered a lot, and that's the ESPN Fox WBD plans to launch a joint streaming service this fall. For those who um, are not familiar with the story, and I would encourage you to go to Alex's work and read it, consumers basically have the ability to subscribe, subscribe directly to what would be a new app. They would also have the ability to bundle this product with Disney Plus, Hulu, and Max. Think about it as like kind of a skinny bundle of these uh, offerings as opposed to you paying for like a traditional cable offering. So it's sort of ESPN and Fox and WBD um, getting all of their properties together, which is a ton. Think about Fox Sports, ESPN, and WBD, what they have. I mean, NBA, you know, college football, NFL, they've got a lot of stuff. They don't have everything, but they have a lot of stuff. And their thought is to, we're going to give you this option that you can buy us directly. So again, Alex, we'll go once again, big picture. You've done a lot of reporting on this. Um, As we talk today, like, what do you make of this? What do you make of the feasibility and what do you make of people talking about it? Yeah. So there's a lot of just general confusion about this still. I mean, that is the big takeaway I've had from talking to people at the leagues, the pay TV distribution world and other media companies uh, that are not a part of this. And to be honest, even some people that kind of are part of this, uh, th- th- just in the sense of like, there's some basic unanswered questions here beyond the fact that there's been no announced leader or even uh, a firm, a definitive agreement among the three companies to actually uh, incorporate this thing yet. Really, we've just had kind of a vague press release that the thing is coming and that they want to launch a skinny bundle of sports networks uh, that include both the sports and other things that are on these linear channels. Um, so that people, if you, you get, you will get the full ABC, for instance, or the full Fox, not just the sports that air on ABC and Fox in this sports app. So some of the questions are, um, the pay TV distributors want to know if these three companies sell this skinny bundle of networks, will the distributors also be allowed the same deal? Uh, and if not, uh, they could potentially sue over uh, MFN, most favored nation clauses 
that these media companies had signed with them that basically say, look, if you are going to give another distributor a better deal than us, then we want the same deal. The question would be, well, this isn't another distributor. This is themselves. So does that count? Like, are they actually reaching a contract there or not? I don't know. That is a legal question. Clearly, there are antitrust concerns here. So there, I think there's kind of no doubt that at least regulators will look at this thing to make sure that Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers uh, are not either hurting consumers by, you know, meshing their power together or potentially hurting other media rivals or ATV providers, or sports leagues, whatever it may be. So that, I think, is still very much an outstanding question. Um, it does strike me that maybe fall of 2024 uh, is ambitious for this thing to launch, given the fact that there are so many questions. Uh, ESPN has also said they have their own direct-to-consumer product that's coming out in the fall of 2025. So that, too, is sort of a competing product to this other thing that's launching. So ESPN made two announcements, the Sports JV and their streaming service, and it kind of cuts the audience for both of them. So, of course, ESPN owns one-third of the Sports JV, and they own 100% of the direct-to-consumer product. Now, the economics will be different, and maybe ESPN figures the Sports JV is a safer bet because since there's more content, it will look more like cable, and therefore fewer people will churn off of it, right? Fewer people will cancel out of season if their favorite sport isn't playing, for instance. Maybe that's the thinking about why to launch two of these things. But my overarching take is that there are a ton of questions about this and very few answers at this stage. That's a great summary. Okay, so a couple of smaller things here. All of us have sort of reported on price points. Um, my, my sense is we uh, probably a lot of us have talked to the same people. Um, the the sort of the price point or the logical starting price point, depending on who you read, but again, it's pretty sourced. All of us are fairly close between forty five, let's say, and fifty five dollars per month with potential introductory offers being lower because they're trying to entice you to sign up. So my question for you, and again, I'll ask you to put your analyst hat on here. Is there enough of an audience that would pay that kind of money for this product independent of whatever else you own, you have, Netflix, Disney Plus, et cetera? Because to me, that's the question is like, is are there enough people out there to make this a sustainable business? So here's where we get to the part of, about my little reference to the fact that there were people even involved in the service itself that had questions about it. I get different answers to this question, depending on who I speak to, among the three companies involved. And I won't get into exactly who says what, because it's conversations that were not on the record. But there are some people involved with this service, the making of this service, who say, this is just a gap offer. Like, we're just trying to get as many people as we can. So it doesn't matter if there's only one or two million people that would sign up for this thing. If it's one or two million more than what we already have, then it's worth it for us to do this. There are other people I've talked to, one person in particular, who said, I expect this thing to be a monster and that it's going to be this phenomenal product that will be bundled with Disney Plus and Max. And it's going to be this you know, earth-shattering product that millions of people sign up for 
because they're going to realize that if they take this and they pair it with Paramount Plus or Peacock, that'll still be less money than what they're paying for cable. And, and, and it's really going to disrupt the industry. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I can't say that I know the answer. Like, I don't have enough knowledge to say that I know the answer to this, other than the fact that I think there's a decent amount of inertia in this business. People do not like canceling their thing, especially if they've bundled it already with internet service or phone or whatever. So whenever there's a new thing that exists like this, uh, unless it's like Disney Plus, which is the one example that comes to mind, which added 10 million subscribers in its first 24 hours. But other than that, like it takes a while, I think, for people to warm up to it, to understand what they're buying. Um, uh, so my guess is that it will be at least slow starting. Uh, and look, to go back to my earlier point, I don't even know if it'll launch on time. So the whole premise to me that this thing is going to be a monster uh, strains credulity to me. But look, what do I know? <laughs> you know a lot. Um, all right. One last thing on ESPN in terms of the direct consumer product, because it's pretty interesting. I mean, again, it was Bob Iger, I believe, who announced that the um, – the ESPN direct-to-consumer product would come to consumers in 2025. And again, um, for those of you who don't understand what that means, it just means that you'll be able to get everything that ESPN offers directly to you as a streaming service. Like think of it, like you'll call it ESPN Netflix, basically. And you'll be able to subscribe to this and you don't need cable and you can, you'll be able to get Monday night football, the college football championships games, all that stuff right now. Everything that ESPN does is not on ESPN plus. They're still sort of, you know, understandably playing sort of both sides here to these parallel paths, but this product eventually gets you all of ESPN. So this is where I throw this back to you, Alex. Do you, I won't, forgetting about the joint venture, what do you think of just ESPN as a direct-to-consumer product in 2025? Um, is that the monster that the company still thinks it will be? Um, they won't have every; they'll have everything that ESPN has, but they don't have everything. You know what I mean? Ultimately, like there's other networks that you know they don't have the the, the NCAA basketball tournament for like uh, one huge example. So. No doubt there'll be millions and millions of people who subscribe to it, but just as like me being an observer, like I don't know what the ceiling is of that. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it's hard to figure out how much of a big monster that's going to be. Let's say if we're talking in 2030, what do you think? Yeah, this is such a good question. Um, Rich Greenfield, who is a media yes. analyst, ESPN skeptic, fair to say sometimes. ESPN skeptic says there's only. 20 to 30 million passionate sports fans in this country. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting many, observation, whether it's right or however not. However many yeah. people sign up for this, like that's the ceiling in his view, because some amount of those people are not going to want to pay X amount of dollars. We still don't know how much the ESPN flagship D to C will cost. It will probably cost less than 45 to $55, which was your price for the JB. So in that sense, maybe the uh, launch of a JB will actually be good news for ESPN from a price value standpoint. Because if you come out with an ESPN streaming service and you and you say it's you know thirty five bucks, the general reaction might be like, "Wow, that's really expensive. That's like double what I pay for Netflix." But if you announce the JV first, then you're like, "Oh, it's you know twenty dollars less than that." Like maybe it seems like a better price value product there. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't know that this will be a monster for ESPN. 
again, to go back to the earlier point about why they even launched the JV, like I think ESPN, their, their whole track record for the last decade or so has been, let's try to stall launching this thing for as long as possible. There's a reason why ESPN is basically the last man standing in terms of exclusive content to the traditional cable bundle. Now that's because ESPN gets paid about $10 per month per subscriber for every person that subscribes to cable, whether or not they watch ESPN. That has been a phenomenal business for ESPN. And there is rightful skepticism that a direct-to-consumer business will be as good of a business for ESPN when you have the ability to be able to very easily cancel your ESPN direct-to-consumer service whenever you want in a much more uh, uh, much easier way than you would to cancel cable, which is a much stickier product. So I think ESPN is quite content for their D2C product not to be a monster uh, as long as the cable bundle survives. And so I think what they're hoping is that whatever that number may be, 45 million, 50 million American households will just continue to subscribe to cable. The amount of people canceling cable will at some point plateau and flatten out that product will not go to zero like some people think. And we will not just evolve into a full streaming universe. And or there will be some sort of streaming bundle that doesn't exist today where ESPN's direct-to-consumer service will be, in effect, bundled with Max and Netflix and whatever other streaming service exists uh, in a couple of years from now. And that will replace the cable bundle and the economics will be something that resembles the cable bundle today. So it's sort of an equal switch for ESPN. Yeah, it's so, it's so it's interesting because like if you were just going to start a business and I told you that I could get you 30 million subscribers to pay for what is now the existing linear, let's say, universe with ESPN, you'd be like, that business is awesome. That congratulations. You are a multi, multi-billionaire. The problem, of course, is that once upon a time it was a hundred million. And right. so, but people should not forget that like it's not gonna go to zero. Like there there are too many people, particularly too many people over 50 years old who have disposable income who are not going to quit cable. Now, like my beloved Sports Illustrated, you know, as the years go on, you start to see the average age of the magazine go up from 50 to 55, 57. People die off. And that, and you don't often get the same, obviously, people to resubscribe in their 20s. But Alex, like the point is like this business, unless something fundamentally crazy happens, there should be a cable business still when me and you are old and gray, like in, in some form. The, the question is, from a media strategy standpoint, do you do something where the cable business uh, you know, really leans into being the place that you find exclusive live programming and the streaming business becomes the place that you find all of your on-demand entertainment. The, the, the problem is that we are now living in a world where that is not a coherent, cohesive strategy among the media companies. NBC Universal puts all their sports on Peacock. Paramount Plus puts all their sports on Paramount Plus. Max has a tier where you pay more for the sports. Disney to this point hasn't put their sports at all on direct consumer, but you know now says that they will. So uh, the there may need to be some uh, consolidation among these companies, and then perhaps a rethinking of strategy so that the cable bundle ends up having 
uh, some sort of value or exclusivity. Because if everything is simply available on streaming, again, unless we get some sort of streaming bundle, uh, you know, there, there, there may be no clear reason for the amount of Americans that cancel cable to ever plateau. And it will just keep going down and down and down. And maybe you do eventually. It's something that more or less looks like zero, in part because the pay TV distributors themselves are like, there's such little profit in this for me. Like, I, you know, I make all my money on high speed broadband or whatever. At this point, the world is more over, more or less over to streaming to begin with. Why are we even offering this thing anymore? We'll just stop offering it. We'll lay off all the people that work in the distribution business and we'll move on with our lives. Yeah, that's where Charter sort of had the leverage over ESPN. And I think this is what Moff, what you just described is what Moffat Nathanson calls cheating, right? It's the cheaters basically who they're throwing some of the great content on streaming as well as cable and you know, everybody's got to pay for it twice. Yeah. Where Dis- I, Disney's I, held I, off. Just, just, to, just briefly, like, I get why they call them cheaters, but like, they're not cheating. Well, they this own it. It's their like a, property, right? They can make the yeah, call. Yeah. They, I mean, there's no rule against them. I know. Like I think they're they did. Double charge. They're just using. That's what they're doing. Yeah, I love those guys. Yeah. They're just using it as yeah. a buzzword. But yes, you're correct. Like, ultimately, sure. at the end of the day, they, they can do what they want. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right, lastly, we'll finish up on this and it does get to, again, it gets to everything we're talking about in terms of, you know, what is your portfolio and where do you put your portfolio? This is the college football playoff um, agreement, the athletic, uh, um, my colleague, Andrew Marshan and my other college football colleagues, they just reported this out. Um, six years, $7.8 billion rights extension pending still a whole sort of issue. So this is not finalized, but it seems like this is where we're heading, where ESPN will have the playoffs for the next six years. And then the key Alex here is that they can sub license the games, to other networks. So two questions for you. One, as a sports guy, like what do you think of the deal? And then two, and this is just my interpretation of it, I cannot see how they don't sublicense it because one, I think that's best for the college football playoffs, which is what they would want. And two, if you're ESPN, don't you got to try to recoup like some money outside somewhere? Um, now, lastly, this is a long, too, too filibuster of question for me. I don't know what the value is of like the number, you know, number 12 seed versus the number four seed. Like, that's the interesting question is like, I mean, and conceptually, yeah, if it's Ohio State versus like Oklahoma, that game could be awesome. If it's like Tulane one year who has a great year, right, versus, you know, Bowling Green, well, the the rights value, that's not so hot. So that's what's interesting to me. By the way, just so yeah. people don't yell at me, I know I didn't mention some Power 5 teams. I get it. Just ex- put your Power 5 teams into where I said Tulane and Bowling Green. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, some of this, again, is a, is a bet on, I think, from ESPN's standpoint, that in order to stay relevant against the uh, much deeper pocketed big tech companies. The ESPN strategy is simply lock up as many sports rights of significance as I can for as long as I can. And, and if I do that, then I'll be able to stay relevant, whether we're living in a cable world 
or a streaming world. Like you're still going to get some audience that is going to need to subscribe to ESPN when it comes down to, in this case, college playoff football season. So uh, I do think that ESPN will take advantage of the sub-licensing to, to recoup some of their money. I also do wonder how much competition there really was for this whole package. I agree. To with because I think ESPN needs it way more than any of the other 100%. Uh, outlets out there. So uh, this may have been a case where they were sort of bidding against themselves. I don't know that for sure. Uh, but l- like it, it, there is a reason why ESPN did this deal. It very much fits their strategy. They want to be the home to as many sports as possible while also living in a world where they are going to need to be a little bit more rational about the money that they spend on all sports. College football is a safe bet for them. Uh, Yes, they they may be dealing with some games here or there uh, in the playoffs that may end up to be clunkers. But by and large, after the NFL or maybe the NBA, college football is certainly right there as your number two slash three uh, uh, safe bet sport. The ratings are going to be strong for it. It's going to draw an audience has a huge rabid fan base. So in essence, like I think the deal makes sense for ESPN. I think it makes sense for the NCAA. Uh, and I think ESPN will be in a mode of trying to figure out any way they can uh, to, to, remain profitable uh, and, and and have a healthy balance sheet in this world we're entering, where suddenly the bidders for all of the marquee sports will change from the broadcast networks to Apple, Amazon, Google, and probably Netflix, even though we're not there yet. Yeah, the, the, everything he says is great, t- great takes. Um, and uh, again, it, it, I mean, it, it goes without saying, although we'll say it, like college football fits into ESPN sort of overall philosophy, even if you think get into the SEC network and the ACC network. It also yeah. sets them up geographically to be in places that they must be in to get money. It is essentially, I hate to sort of use, uh, um, uh, well, I won't even say sort of say that. It, it essentially is their Southern and Southwest and sort of Big Ten Midwestern strategy as a company because it gets them consumers in those places where not necessarily, um, you know, the NBA, the NFL is everywhere, but you're so NBA or Major League Baseball. So I'm with you. I think they have made themselves essentially the home of college sports in America. And it it would... To wrap this property up is so much more important to them than if it's Fox, right, or anybody else. It's just it's it's their philosophy essentially as a business. Yeah, right. There was a separate deal that ESPN inked earlier this year, which was like a I don't know I, I want to say it's a nine hundred and fifteen million. I'll have to look that up, or people at home can look it up. But it was a long term deal, and it was for basically all the other NCAA sports, you know, and and some of some of those sports are uh, getting to be more and more popular. Women's basketball, totally. Sports. Yep. Um, so you're 100% right. They want to be the home of college sports. They want th- th- those sports to live uh, uh, in their whatever streaming Ecosystem, right. world they come up yeah. with. And they want and they want NBC Plus. and Fox, and they, they have, they're trying to make sure that they don't get it as much as anything Correct. else, right? Correct. Exactly. It keeps them viable for as long as possible. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Alex, you should have a podcast. I keep always saying this. Alex Sherman is a CNBC media reporter and an excellent one. Check out his work. 
on all of CNBC's different platforms. Um, he's been doing phenomenal work when it comes to the uh, joint venture, as we talked about in this podcast, between ESPN Fox and WBD. He'll be leading, uh, along with some other reporters, I think, that coverage. So if you are interested in that joint venture, and if you're listening to this podcast, you absolutely are, because it you're going to probably have to make a decision at some point as a consumer, am I willing to put my money into this thing or... Am I going to continue to play the game where I'm just going to get all these different streaming services? Uh, some of this is really just about your own diehard nature of being a national sports fan. And by the way, maybe I'll bring Alex back one day for this. This doesn't even include how you feel about your own local team or regional team, which is a whole, di- which is a whole different Alex like payment that you must make. Richard, this is very simple. Just keep paying for cable and pay my CNBC salary. Yes, like I, I, I am a proud. Uh, Although you don't get any of this, Alex, because I'm paying in a different country right now. But I'm a proud cable subscriber in Toronto. But if I live in the United States, trust me, I, I would still be getting cable. It's, I think, at least for some of us, you realize, not that I love the cable companies per se, but man, what what a what a deal it was in hindsight for all the entertainment uh, and sports that you got. Alex, uh, uh, please come back. Um, I always enjoy when you're on. And uh, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Anytime, Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Alex Sherman. He's always excellent, and uh, try to have him back more. Uh, uh, just always good on this stuff, and very plugged in, and um, and has some interesting takes on where the the future of sports media is. If you like these podcasts, head to the archives page. Please leave us a five star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. Last couple ones: Kenny Smith, uh, the longtime inside the NBA studio host; Noah Eagle. Uh, who came on this podcast to talk about what it was like to call the Super Bowl on Nickelodeon. Uh, did some, obviously, football content, a ton of football content leading into the Super Bowl. If you like hockey, Ray Ferraro and Sean McDonough were on this podcast not too long ago. If you like college football, Paul Feinbaum was a guest recently. And if you're into the business side, we had uh, Karen Brotkin and Hillary Mandel, who are uh, the deal makers for Endeavor uh, when it comes to negotiating for the NCAA and stuff like that. Uh, thank you. To Patrick Antonetti, always working hard for me, and uh, I do not take that for granted. Excellent producer. Thank you to Odyssey and everybody there for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.